This podcast has, until now, mostly criticized issues that we have in the U.S. But Aaron is a geopolitical hobbyist and a world news junkie, so he's decided that, just like every political commentator on the downspin, it's time to get into the greasy, murky waters of geopolitics. (laughs) So, with the Beijing Olympics coming up, and lots of diplomatic posturing taking place with multiple countries backing out, saying that they will uh, politically protest the Olympics, which just means that our brave men and women who are at the peak of their athleticism will go in with no real protection. That's right. Which is, you know, fantastic when you really think about it. Just, uh, you know, send a bunch of people right after you gave... One of the most, one of the biggest dictatorships in the world, the biggest police state in the world for sure. Uh, you just gave them the big middle finger. <laughs> here's uh, here's a couple of defenseless boys and girls, mostly teenagers. You know, oh, God. hope you don't do anything to them while while they're there. Um, beyond that, human rights violations, persecution of ethnic minorities in China, and the CCP's overall. Um, hold that they have on the Chinese people, uh, it's something we want to talk about. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, welcome to the, uh, Soy Boy Podcast. This is, uh, episode four. I am a Aaron. I'm Michael. And I'm producer Chad. And yeah, so today this one's, a uh, one that I really feel passionate about. And, um, I wanted to get a little bit into the geopolitical sphere just because I am a big geopolitics buff. Um, but this is a pretty, um, it's a pretty hot topic right now. Um, because what we're seeing is a lot of diplomatic posturing that is counter to, um, you know, the, the regular mainstream CCP narrative. So, um, I'm going to try to kind of define some terms as we go along if you're not really familiar with what's going on in China, um, but I, I may make some slip-ups uh, here or there. So um, let me just let me just kind of jump right into a big issue that could come up here. Um, so there's, you know, this belief called the horseshoe effect, which is that like when you're on the far right or you're on the far left, you can kind of have some overlap and agree on things. And, well, I understand that something like that can happen. Um, You can believe in similar things for different reasons. And so, um, with that being said, when you talk about China, you can draw a couple groups out of the woodwork. Ultra-nationalist, you know, Americans that are far-right, warmongers, bloodthirsty, ready to kill the Chacoms and the globalists. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna get the globalists. Um, when the globalists just always seem to be somebody else rather than America, one of the biggest cultural influences of our age. Shout out! Actually, the U.S. is completely powerless. All we are is the light of justice in the world, trying to. I am justice. Anybody who says that America is the underdog in the culture war is an idiot, or they trying to have... sell you supplements, or both. <laughs> It's crazy. They haven't been paying attention for a while. The Venn diagram is a circle. Uh, so the you know we're stepping out of 
specifically the U.S., but the U.S. will come up because, of course, we've got this great power conflict thing going on between the U.S. and China, uh, a, a, a high-level power and a rising power. And uh, so you're going to attract the far-right conservatives who are China hawks. And then you're also going to attract um, the tankies, right? The uh, communist apologists. All 12 of them. Yeah, that's right. All 12 of them. They think Stalin did nothing wrong. Communism by any means necessary. Willing to just completely simp for China and um, apologize and uh, deflect for absolutely everything wrong that they ever did. Um, up to and including the Cultural Revolution and, you know, the Great Leap Forward and all that kind of stuff. And as we, you know, a, a relatively left-leaning podcast, uh, alienate our, our brethren. That's right. Um, you now know we don't do this for the money. We do this because we have opinions. Yeah, we do it for the love of the game. This is an opinion podcast, so please just remember that. We're going to try to cite our sources as much as possible. And yeah, tankies are whack. You yeah, tankies are, are fucked. Um, but a lot of hot takes to be to be coming up here, so... Yeah, we're trying to alienate pretty much anyone who would actually click on this fucking episode. Uh, that's that's our goal here. Um, but uh, with that introduction out of the way, I think we're going to go to a break, and then we're going to come right back. All right, welcome back. Um, so we took a little breaky break. We got ourselves some brewskis, and we are ready to rumble. So The only way to talk about geopolitics is uh, not sober. You got to be shit-faced. Uh, so the last thing I mentioned was kind of um, the U.S. Uh, extremists that are drawn to these kind of topics um, that I'm not a fan of. But what we are going to address next is kind of the other audience that may be drawn to something like this. Um, and of course, in this uh, case, we're talking about the ultra-nationalist uh, Chinese trolls out there uh, called the Wu Mao, or Little Pinks, um, also known as the 50 Cent Army. These are ultra-nationalist uh, Chinese who have uh, basically used a VPN to get around the uh, Great Firewall, and they just go out there and they comment on, you know, Facebook posts and YouTube videos and stuff, basically, you know, denying anything wrong that uh, the Chinese Communist Party ever does and, you know, beating their chests and talking about how great China is. Um, so one of the biggest criticisms that you get from these Wu Mao are um, basically saying that you are racist for criticizing the Chinese Communist Party or the Communist Party of China, as they have recently said is the proper way to say it. Somehow it's actually racist to say the CCP because it's, just the communists it's not you know communism with uh chinese characteristics something like that it's literally called the ccp in the chinese translation so we're gonna say ccp um and basically the 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 big issue there is that they say that look you're racist if you criticize the ccp because the communist party of china and the chinese people they're indistinguishable from each other you can't separate them out to criticize communism is to criticize Chinese people themselves. What do you think about that, Mike? Think they're right? It's a weird take. <clears throat> it's a weird take. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird take. And so we're going to just, you know, preempt that by saying uh, Chinese, actually not a race. Um, Chinese is a nationality, um, first and foremost, and uh, you, you cannot be really racist against uh, the ethnicities of China by criticizing the CCP. It just doesn't work that way. It's a similar argument to um, 
being critical of Israel as a want-to-be ethnostate. Right. And being anti-Semitic. Right. I think that's a really good example. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so, you know, the Chinese people are are not the government. That's our view. That's our position here. And we get to have whatever position we want because it's a fucking opinion podcast. Yeah, because so, we're cool. Yeah, get wrecked. Or not, you know. Yeah, whichever, get wrecked. Whatever you prefer. But yeah, so that's our kind of uh, stance on this. Um, we're going to go just a little bit further into prefacing this because I think it's really important to talk about. Um, so we've mentioned the, the trolls and the apologists um, that can be attracted to uh, a pod like this. Um, and then the, the other thing I want to say is that, look, the, the topics that we're talking about today are very, very serious, okay? And what we're talking about is, in a lot of cases, genocide, cultural genocide. We're talking about repression of human rights in China. Um, and there are a lot of Wumao out there who would say the U.S., does not have any grounds to criticize what is happening in Xinjiang because A, it's an internal matter to China, and B, uh, the U.S. has also done genocide. So, you know, you guys can't talk. And our position is basically that, look, there is enough room in the range of opinions and positions in the world to be anti-genocide no matter where it's happening. It's crazy how me not liking the genocide in China also correlates with my opinion that genocide is bad when I look to places like Israel and um, the U.S. and its history of genocides, as well as, you know, most large countries, Turkey, another big one. Rwanda, Rwanda, Germany. U.K. also. Yeah, Russia as well. Um... Plenty of countries have done genocide. All of them bad. It's a real hot take. Yeah, I know. And another group that also comes at, like, with these hot takes that, like, you can't criticize genocide because you're American or whatever, um, those are also going to be the wolf warrior diplomats. So these are people like Jiali Jian who uh, have made a career for themselves by just being the most bellicose, rude inciting uh, people possible, you know, on the government uh, payroll. And they just go out there and they pick fights and they they push people around and they call them a running dog, which is like a weird insult that they use. Um, And they just, you know, attack people. And this is all to go on the offensive um, because, like, you know, the best defense is a good offense, that kind of principle. And that's entirely playing to a domestic Chinese audience. That's projecting strength as a Chinese diplomat for the sake of your Chinese constituency, not necessarily because you think that's a good strategy to win <laughs> friends and influence people, essentially. Um, and that's all because there's a lot of national insecurity uh, in, in China. And that's one of the reasons why this type of human rights uh, abuse stuff takes place. It's one of the reasons why genocide is is deemed to be necessary. It's all in the interest of national security. A lot of people don't know this, but... China has pretty much always spent more money on their defense internally than they have on externally defending against their neighbors, that kind of stuff. Um, it's a huge surveillance state. It is the number one you know, fear of China that there will be disharmony 
and um, instability within China's borders. And that's because it's a gigantic country with uh, 55 uh, recognized uh, ethnic minorities within it on top of the Han majority. And so when, when we think of Han, uh, when we think of a Chinese person, typically what we picture is uh, a Han person, a person of, of Han ethnicity. This is 91.5% of the Chinese population, and they are the dominant ethnicity. Okay, when they... So, what I'm going to be doing here, because I don't know that much about China, is I'm going to be the question person. When they say uh, recognized minorities, yes, what does that mean? It means that... So... China will recognize minorities and like sometimes those people can get like scholarships or they can go to specific schools. They'll get like, uh, you know, uh, what they call like positive discrimination um, policies and stuff like that. Um, but there are also minorities which are not recognized. Okay. So some scholars cite about 200 ethnic minorities that exist um, all throughout. Um, but for basically the uh, for census taking, um, you know, taxes, um, Co, which is like the housing registration um, that that you have to to use, um, it's they're they're just metrics that the the Chinese Communist Party officially recognizes, okay. and so there are unrecognized ethnic minorities in China, um, but even with the recognized ethnic minorities, we're talking about a whole bunch of different peoples with a whole range of different beliefs and and cultures, and in in my perspective, the main policy of the CCP right now as it pertains to human rights abuses and um, this genocide that's taking place against the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, um, the, the whole reason for that is essentially to maintain stability because they look at uh, differentness as being something that can tear apart the fabric of society. Mm. Um, and so that kind of goes into what is the, you know, national identity and all that kind of stuff. Um, but do you have any comments on this before we move on, Mike? I don't think so. I think you uh, need to pretty well. Okay, so we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come right back. All right. Aaron was trying to silence me, as <laughs> all dictators do. <laughs> You guys, those at home may not know this, but Aaron actually holds a gun to me and makes sure that I read off of a script. Otherwise, uh, otherwise he'll murder me. It's, it's why are you telling crazy. people that now you have to die? Oh no! Well, all right. This is going to be my last, yeah, you know, my last segment, and we we accept that for what it is. We'll still release it. <laughs> <laughs> so, as uh, enlightened centrists, we talked about the CCP side of propaganda. The other side of propaganda, besides, you know, what every country creates, the, the biggest, like, other player in the propaganda war is the U.S. The, um, or at least that's, you know, the argument. The U.S. definitely puts out anti-Chinese propaganda in order to keep that old fight of capitalism versus communism going. We see it all the time on any sort of media platform that's, you know, corporate or otherwise. They'll go into tirades about how terrible China is. 
when you know we we made China. Uh, the business interests, the business interests of America, almost single-handedly turned China into the powerhouse that it is. So Thanks, it's it's our Thanks, Nixon for going to fucking China. It's our it's our capitalist, you know, riddled brains' faults. It's our ancestors' faults that the that the Chinese were able to be as strong as they are now. Which another nation being strong is not a bad thing, but. What is a bad thing is when that nation starts committing atrocities, yeah. as we've said before pl- other nations have done and should be called out for and have been called out for them. Um, and this is, no, this is no different. There are, uh, there are people on the left that, I've, that I listen to who, when um, like Chinese genocide is brought up, they come at it from the angle that the Chinese propaganda um, pushes, which is that it's not racially motivated. These people are separatists. They um, hold, like, separatist values that needs to be crushed in order to protect, you know, the Chinese people and the Chinese government. Um, I mean, that's just strictly false. Um, And not only that, these people will then go... The other direction and say, well, some of the news, you know, news that is pushed out against China is almost always like state propaganda from the U.S. side. So they're denouncing, you know, one piece of propaganda and then completely falling for the other. And I find that kind of goofy. Yeah, I mean, it's true. The U.S. has a position on this. Like, we can go back all the way to the fucking, you know, Red Scare and McCarthyism and, you know, the John Birch Society nutjobs who are all, like, their whole raison d'etre was to fucking be anti-communist. And so, yeah, old habits die hard. Like, once the Soviet Union went away, like, you've got to keep a big bad guy somewhere. Otherwise, we're just wandering around aimlessly. So, in a way, yes, the media and, uh, you know, the the U.S. government, in, in some cases, is going to be pushing its own pro-America propaganda. But you can't just look at um, the, you know, U.S. propaganda and criticize it and not criticize the propaganda that's coming out of the Chinese Communist Party. So that's a, a very important like point to make, and I agree with it. And um, what what my life Mike is spared. Is, yeah, what Mike is talking about specifically, when we're talking about people holding separatist views, is like relevant to Taiwan, Tibet, and then specifically in the case that we're going to be mostly talking about today, the Xinjiang and the Uyghur genocide. And so, like, yes, these. Um, the the people, the Uyghur people, are ethnically distinct from the Han Chinese majority. They are Islamic, where the you know there's official state atheism in the Chinese Communist Party. So they have different religious values. They have different cultural values. They eat different food. Um, they speak a different language. They they speak uh, they don't speak Mandarin Chinese. They speak like a Turkic language, um, and they're more they have more ethnically in common with um, the people of Central Asia than they do with, you know, the Han Chinese. And geographically, they're even separated by all these deserts and mountains. So it's a differentness that some people would say the U.S. is latching onto to try to stoke some kind of proxy that is going to be on their side, right? They don't care about the human rights. 
And I'm sure some people really do think this is a great way to get back at China to criticize their genocide. But we can, in good faith, criticize genocide because we don't believe in it and we think it's wrong. Um, so I want to thank Mike for bringing that up. Really good point. Um, and then I do want to just jump right into a couple of sources in case you are interested in learning more about China. Um, I have gone down a real rabbit hole learning about China. Um, it started with YouTube videos, but then a lot of those YouTube videos will offer you books. And then I got on Audible and I started just digging through every single book that I could find. Not sponsored by Audible yet, but hey. Hey, Maybe. Audible, Audible sponsor us, Hit please. me up, dog. We need money. Text me. Text me, bro. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, the main book that I get a lot of the information for this episode from... Um, State-funded book, by the way. That's right. Uh, one of the main books is We Have Been Harmonized. Um, so that's a, that's a real good one. You can just um, you can find it on Audible. Let me see who the author is on that. Oh, that's crazy. It's the CIA handbook. Whoa. The CIA handbook. <laughs> that's by Kai Strittmutter. Um, so we have been harmonized. It's called We Have Been Harmonized Life in China's Surveillance State by Kai Strittmoner. And it talks a lot about the statecraft uh, surveillance um, on the Chinese people. And by calling out specifically the genocide issues that we're talking about today, um, we don't want to minimize the fact that all people in China, to a certain extent, are oppressed. They're just not all oppressed equally, right? You can't speak out about the government in general. There's no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of assembly. Um, you, you don't have the right of free association, you know. But it's very different if you look, act, and sound very different from the Han ethnic majority, which is primarily in power. So that's something I want to mention. Um, so we've been harmonized. Great source. Another book, uh, Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy, that talks about, uh, I think it's five main areas of concern that could destabilize um, China or that China needs to kind of solve um, as they are continuing to uh, develop and rise as a power. So like one of the big things is their economy and this debt burden that they have, as well as um, issues of like pollution um, and environmental degradation, um, their crisis of aging that they're having, their, you know, uh, demographics, you know, they had a demographic dividend uh, that was kind of paying off uh, in the 50s through the 80s, and they're going to just have a declining birth rate kind of from here on out, um, which is going to be really hard because they're going to have a lot of older people that are going to need to be taken care of, and those people are also going to be taken out of the workforce. Um, then we've got another which book. Is just being extrapolated by... The coronavirus. Right, exactly. The coronavirus is, is also hurting that. Um, and then, you know, automation is basically what they're banking on to try to save them. Um, but still, a lot of industries in China are very labor-intensive. And so it, it remains to be seen whether or not automation and AI can replace all that will be lost as, you know, these populations age out of the workforce. Um, and then China, the, ne the Bubble That Never Pops, that's a really good book. I highly recommend that to anyone who is interested in economy and specifically like what's happening with Evergrande um, and uh, Kaisa Group and Fantasia Group, all these um, big real estate companies in China that are starting to miss payments on their debts. A lot of times they're U.S. dollar denominated bonds and these companies are going to undergo sort of controlled demolitions to prevent contagion in the Chinese housing market. But it this book um, really goes over just how badly the 
the like Chinese economy is just addicted to debt. It's a debt-based growth model. It has been since the 2008 stock market crash. And the growth, the the growth based on debt model is just it's not sustainable. And China knows that, and Xi Jinping is trying to combat that with his three red lines policy. Um, so look more into the three red lines policy if you want, and that's actually the cause of Evergrande's initial collapse. Not just that they were you know unable to make their payments; it's that they were unable to take new debt out to cover the payments they needed to make, and that was a result directly of of one of Xi Jinping's policies. Um, then we've got the Emperor's New Road. This is a really good one if you want to learn about the Belt and Road Initiative, or One Belt, One Road, which is uh, Xi Jinping's um, key foreign policy uh, agenda. And that's basically just these huge, massive infrastructure projects that are supposed to connect China with uh, trading partners. And basically, the, the big one is a flagship project which uh, connects uh, China to, uh, to Europe through a land route, and um, then also the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which allows China to bypass uh, India, going around India, to get petroleum from uh, Iran and the Middle East uh, back to China. So those are really interesting, and a a lot of themes that come up there is just how corrupt everything is, and why corruption is, is a huge problem that's standing in the way of it, but is also helping it, so it's difficult, it's like a chicken and the egg situation. Um, and then two other ones I want to talk about, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. That is um, a book that is not actually about the New World Order. It's about what the world looks like with AI driving you know, um, technological development and driving industry. And it really gives you a good insight into how the government works with the private sector and how absolutely vicious and competitive the market is in China. Like these tech companies will literally make a clone page that looks like their competition just to draw off market share and bankrupt other companies that are standing in their way. It's 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 vicious. It's cutthroat. Um, That's just capitalism, it, baby. It is. It is. And we're going to get into that in our rant. We got a rant section later on. Uh, called Hero Worship, and uh, so I'll come back to that. Thank you for for mentioning that. Uh, And then the last one is All Measures Short of War. This one's kind of like all countries, just talking about uh, elements of statecraft, the ways that, you know, cyber attacks and intelligence and stuff like that are going to be implemented um, in this this new world that's been created where we have all this technology and all these interconnected economies where – all-out war is not really feasible, but yet we have to find ways to undermine the competition and stay on top. And uh, so that's really interesting to talk about um, when we look at how integrated our economy is with China. So um, those are my sources. I'm going to stop there, and then we're going to jump into the meat of the pod. Also, all those sources will be in the show notes. Hell yeah. All right, we're back. Thanks for tuning back into the Soy Boy Podcast. Um, so this is a, the section where we're going to just talk about sort of, uh, ethnicity and a little bit of how things work in modern China. So I touched on this a little bit, but I just want to kind of harp on a few things from my research into this topic and into modern China in general. Um, there's just a few things that I want to, that I want to mention here. So the Han are the ethnic majority in China, um, China, like, Chinese is not really an ethnicity, it's a nationality, and so when you're talking about, um, you know, 
China, you're talking about the, the nationality, not necessarily the ethnicity. And a lot of people don't know that there are a lot of very distinct ethnicities in China that have very different cultures and um, different languages and practice different religions um, than the majority. Um, so we mentioned uh, that the Han Chinese make up about 91.5% uh, of the population. And then we're going to uh, list the other uh, major ethnic minorities in China. So you've got the Zhuang, who are uh, 16.9 million people. You have the Hui, who are 10.5 million. They are, uh, the Hui are Muslims. Um, Manchu, 10.3 million. Uh, Uyghur, or Uyghur, is 10 million. Uh, the Miao, 9.4 million. And actually, the Hmong people are not recognized um, officially, they're, they're seen as a subset by the government of the Miao people. So they have uh, 9.4 million people. The Yi with uh, 8.7 million. The Tuja, which uh, have 8.3 million. Tibetan, 6.2 million. One note on this, Tibet is gigantic, but it's at a very high elevation and it's kind of a barren landscape. And so even though Tibet makes up this gigantic portion of China, it's actually very sparsely populated. And um, one thing that I want to mention about Tibet is that it's a very strategic place to hold because even though it's very barren, um, the source of a lot of the rivers in China come from Tibet and they come from the um, uh, mountains um, over there, you know, boarding up like the Himalayas. Um, so really important for China to hold on to it and consolidate it and also use it as a buffer zone between them and India. Um, geopolitically, right? So it's very important for them to keep a death grip on Tibet, and that's why there's a lot of repression there, because they have a unique uh, ethnicity, they're recognizable, they are, are Buddhist, um, so they're not going with the state-run atheism type deal, um, and so the differentness is, is a threat, and whereas they recognize the Dalai Lama, that is a power that is, you know, the religion is, is above the state authority, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where we come into power conflict with, you know, the persecution of, of Tibetans. Um, got any thoughts on that? That's a lot. That's a lot of information. Um, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, so Tibet, very strategic place to hold. Uh, then you've got the Mongols, which are 5.9 million. The Mongols are mostly concentrated in Inner Mongolia, which is a northern province um, in China. It's like actually a, a supposedly an autonomous zone, but uh, the leader of you know Inner Mongolia, so to speak, actually reports to the Chinese Communist Party. So he's got oversight. So it's not really autonomous if you have to report to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and uh, so the Mongols pose also. Uh, a challenge to um, the uh, the Chinese Communist Party because they have a distinct ethnicity. They have their own religious beliefs that are different. They're not Muslim, um, and they're historically a nomadic people. We so, all watched Mulan. That's right. We know. We, not the live action version. Wait, I think those were the Huns. Um, but the <laughs> <laughs> not like this. <laughs> Damn. Um, yeah. So the Mongols, historically nomadic uh, peoples. And uh, they, they do have their own beliefs and their own culture, which is uh, distinct from um, the rest of China. And so that is also a territory that is very strategic for China because that is their buffer, buffer with Mongolia. And, and by way of that, it's a buffer from Russia. So um, you need all these buffer states to defend the Chinese heartland, which is 
really the eastern part of China, which is where most Han live. Um, and so we're seeing a theme here um, where different peoples are being incorporated into China for a strategic value, but the differentness can be a weakness because China, with its overbearing grip, kind of pushes down on these on these groups and they actually become a cause of, of friction in themselves. So we've also got the Dong people, 2.8 million, the Bu Ye, which is also 2.8, uh, the Yao, 2.7 million, the Bai, 1.9 million, Korean, 1.8 million, Hani, which is 1.6 million, the Li, which is 1.4 million, and then Kazakh, uh, 1.4 million. Now, Kazakh, I just want to mention, also, uh, it's in like a very far western portion of um, China, over by Xinjiang area, um, and so the, the Kazakhs and the Uyghurs are living in a similar area. Guess what? Big surprise. Also a very strategic place to, to hold. Historically, China has had to fear invasion from Central Asia, and you need to keep that area as a buffer to protect against invasion of your heartland, which is actually on the east. So, um, and then our last is going to be the Dai, which have 1.2 million. Um, so, this is where I'm going to get into my controversial opinion. Um, oh? Yeah. Here's my controversial opinion. The Huns lived in modern-day Mongolia. Here's One could my say controversial Mongolian. opinion. Okay. If you like historical fiction... And reading about the end of the Mongol rule and mm -hmm. the beginning of the Ming Dynasty mm -hmm. with a little bit of a sapphic twist. Uh oh. The book She Who Became the Sun. Historical yeah. Chinese fiction with a sapphic twist and the beginning of the Ming Dynasty. I can't believe you're actually pushing Chinese propaganda. I'm not! That sounds really cool. What is sapphic? Sapphic is lesbian. Oh, okay. Yeah. We fully support that on the Soybo podcast. <laughs> this is this is a, a PG podcast. Mm -hmm. We're sorry for pushing our you know social agenda. <laughs> I will say props to Taiwan for being much more progressive on like same sex couples than on like mainland China. It's uh, like it's not easy to be in a like a same sex relationship or even just be homosexual uh, in Asia in general right now. Um, but um, props. Props on that, and like that could be a whole other episode. Is like you know the Chinese Communist Party discouraging same-sex relationships and cracking down on sissy boys and all that kind of stuff. Imagine saying homosexual in twenty twenty two. Is that like a bad thing to say? I'm sorry. No, it's just very antiquated. Is it okay? Well, I'm sorry. Uh, my bad. Non-hetero. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So. My position here is that China is right now going through sort of a Hanification. Um, it's almost like an internal colonization. It's almost like a manifest destiny within China's borders to consolidate and sort of extinguish and assimilate as much of the uh, ethnic minority population as possible, but to also have like a might mix right situation in the the provinces and you know autonomous regions there's a lot of han living in inner mongolia there are a lot of han that are moving to 
um, Xinjiang, there's encouragement of Han moving to Tibet. You know, this is kind of like a squatter's rights type thing where like, oh yeah, you're going to say that you're different because you're Tibetan? Well, guess what? There's a lot of Han people that live there that, you know, think otherwise. And this comes with a whole new set of repression because you have to send in security forces, or at least they think they have to send in additional security forces to act as the bodyguards, essentially, for these people. Um, It's a very regular thing that countries that are trying to become an ethno-state will do. America did it back during the gold rush. Yep. Um, Israel's doing it to Palestine. So, when you say that, are they like... I'm going to use a weird metaphor here, but, like, are they trying to be like, oh, we're a melting pot, but then it just comes out as, like, tomato soup? No, they don't want to be a melting pot. They want to be, um... Just tomato soup. Just tomato soup. Everyone, (laughs) yes. Everyone should be the exact same flavor of communist soup. Yeah, they're pulling a uh, a Tucker Carlson and saying that, like, the white replacement theory is bad, but the white replacement in this uh, instance are the Han Chinese and the replacement isn't happening. It's just Han Chinese going in and replacing everybody else. Mm. So it's, it's, yeah, it's basically like diversity isn't our strength. And so if you remove, remove the diversity, then we will be strong. Nothing in our tomato soup, but tomato soup. It's literally all just tomato soup. They hate gumbo. They don't want any <laughs> texture. They don't want any different flavor. It's all going to taste exactly they don't the even, same. They don't even want bread at this That's point. Right. It's just soup. That's it. That's all you get. Yeah. Okay. You just want a one-size-fits-all um, for you. everybody. And, you know, what a good metaphor because tomato soup is red. What else is red? Communism. Communism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. <laughs> good. Good. I'm glad you tied that in there. Shout out to the tomato soup vanguard. That's right. Soon to be made. <laughs> Um, so a couple bullet points on, on that, just, you know, uh, the communist party wants to basically integrate everybody, stamp out what deviates from the mean. Um, there's a saying, uh, in China that roughly translates to like the nail that stands up will be hammered down, um, which is, you know, uh, conformity is good. Um, also basic construction. Right. Also basic constructive, uh, construction and infrastructure, which we'll get into. Um, uh, CCP needs social stability, harmony, and he- homogeneity. They, they need this to sh- to strengthen the Communist Party's grip. That's what they feel. And this can kind of be, like, we can make a little bit of a comparison here with, like, what happened in, um, in the U.S. after 9-11. Like, there was a lot of fear-mongering and and scary stuff out there about Muslims in your community. They're different from you. They believe something different, and that's that's scary somehow. And we had a we had we kind of lost our minds for a little bit after nine eleven. And uh, still losing it. Yeah, exactly. And it, it it still is going on. Um, but I think that after the war on terror. And, you know, kind of pulling out from Afghanistan and, you know, no longer having combat operations in Iraq. I, I think that some of that fervor has died down a little bit. And I'm happy I think to that see fervor that. has just turned into white supremacy. Well, that, yeah, that, that may actually be true. Um, but the idea that difference is a threat, right, that's, that's what comes from that. And that's what we're seeing with Xinjiang, with the Uyghurs being painted broadly as terrorists and separatists. Um, and then, uh, so, any 
difference can be seen as a threat. China doesn't want anyone who has a different culture to cling on to to fight for as a rallying cry. So they need to remove that. Um, anything that wasn't removed during the Cultural Revolution. Um, and then uh, historically nomadic people have always posed a threat to nation-states and agricultural civilizations. Um, that's one reason to uh, assimilate groups like the ethnic Mongols. If you tie someone down to the land and you surround them, they can't evade you anymore. They can't retreat somewhere else and form a way to come back and attack you. Um, so we're going to leave it there, and then we're going to do uh, a, a, a pretty large reading that's based on a, a summary from um, amnesty.org. Everything in green is the reading. Once again, Michael here with a, with a reading. <clears throat> this is from Amnesty.org from 2020, before uh, China kicked out all of the journalists due to the coronavirus. Alright, so. Severe and wide-ranging repression of ethnic minorities continued unabated under the pretense of anti-separatism anti-extremism and counter-terrorism in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is Xinjiang, and the Tibet Autonomous Region, which is Tibet. Again, this is um, harking back to what we discussed previously with people um, on one side not falling for, like, state propaganda or what is perceived to be state propaganda, and then just completely hook, line, and sinker falling for Chinese propaganda. Access to and from Tibet remained highly restricted, particularly for journalists, academics, and human rights organizations, making it extremely difficult to investigate and document the human rights situation in the region. In Xinjiang, since 2017, an estimated 1 million or more Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other predominantly Muslim peoples were arbitrarily detained without trial and subjected to political indoctrination and forced cultural assimilation in transformation through education centers. Interesting. Documenting the full scope of violations remained impossible due to a lack of publicly available data and restrictions on access to the region. Despite having initially denied the existence of camps, authorities later described them as vocational training centers. <laughs> Nevertheless, satellite imagery indicated that an increasing number of camps continued to be built throughout the year. Wow. <laughs> and this just, I mean, this just goes into, you know, the hold that China has on the information that gets out from its country. So, in reality, this could be a lot worse than even we're being reported by Amnesty.org. Yeah, so, like, if you don't let journalists in to Xinjiang, then nobody really can see what's going on there. But information has leaked out. We can't pretend that we don't know for sure that this is going on because there's drone footage of, and you see these people in these purple jumpsuits that are blindfolded. There's a million guards around them, you know, in these, in these fucking camps. And it like, where'd, it, it, where'd the drone come from? That's a good question. It was probably, um, someone who was in Xinjiang who was flying a drone. 
Yeah. Sounds like the CIA. Yeah, probably the CIA. Um, but, like, we've we've seen... That, so there's a whole bunch of documentaries. I highly encourage anyone who can to um, just spend a little bit of time on YouTube just looking up... Uh, you know, all you have to search is the word Uyghur. Like, um, all you have to do is, is search Uyghur or Xinjiang or anything like that. You don't even need to say CCP oppression or genocide or anything like that. That's just all that comes up um, because this is so well known and we're just kind of... Um, de- dealing with it. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, there were a lot of boycott campaigns and a lot of protests against companies using um, products that were u- that are made with like Xinjiang forced labor, which are cotton products. Um, a lot of cotton products come from Xinjiang and tomato products like ketchup. A lot of those are are like tomato soup. Tomato soup. Like tomato oh fucking soup. Oh my god, we've done it. <laughs> the tomato soup journalism guys. We're we're really making it happen. Um, but so one of the big issues when, when trying to investigate something like the genocide that's taking place in Xinjiang is that a lot of times you have to rely on government information that's being put out there. And the, it's in the government's interest to cover up and minimize whatever they can. So that's how we get, instead of something like concentration camps, the vocational center, training center. We're teaching these people skills um, and all that kind of stuff. What they don't talk about is the criteria that they're using to get people into these camps. And a lot of times the criteria they're using is like they own a Quran. They have uh, a, a family member who has left the country. They send money to a relative who lives in Australia. These are things that are legitimately used. And when you look at these documentaries, you see the control. There are checkpoints set up absolutely everywhere in places like Kashgar or Urumqi, where like you can't move from A to B if you're a Uyghur without showing your papers, showing your phone. There's a uh, app that you have to install on your phone that uh, allows the authorities to see everything that you do. Oh, Track your location. It's no. it's disgusting. And do you think that this is also the same rule for the Han Chinese that live there? No, it's not. They have even gone to the point where they embed Han Chinese like ambassadors, which are basically just spies that get embedded into a family in order to like assimilate them and be their friend. But really what they're doing is just spying on them. A lot of times these people are put in there when a family member from the the uh, Uyghur family is sent to the camps. Just trying to keep tabs on people. This is the like disgusting level of intrusiveness that we're talking about. So, a um, couple things that uh, uh, I just want to mention. Has anyone actually seen the videos here? Have you guys seen the videos? I watched the, uh, the drone video. Yeah. Sell the drone video of the people with the blindfolds on, the handcuffs and stuff. Look pretty fake, like the moon landing. They've even done, like, tours. They did, like, guided tours through the vocational centers. Where, Should like, you like, have a... This is okay? You, yeah, you have, like, a communist official who's, like, leading, like, a camera crew through. And, like, you see these people, like, literally imprisoned there, like, singing if you're happy... And you know it. Say yes, sir. Oh. It's it's so creepy. Um, it's kind of beyond. They, they've done interviews with people who have been there. Um, there's a woman who I believe now lives in Turkey who was like a survivor of the camps, and she was saying like, you you literally can't go to the bathroom on your own. Like it's 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 disgusting. That makes me nauseous. Yeah, exactly. This is not easy stuff to talk about, but we want to talk about it because the Beijing Olympics are coming up, and like. A huge set of the international community is, like, totally fine to ignore it. I mean, is 
even diplomatically boycotting doing enough? This is happening right now. It's not like we don't know better. This is happening right now. But the U.S.'s interests and a lot of the international community's interests are so intertwined with domestic, uh, with, with, you know, domestic uh, consumer demand for cheap Chinese-made products that we allow this kind of stuff to happen just by not, by not speaking out. So um, I'll go into a, a second section here, and this is going to get a little bit into um, what is mentioned in the book, We Have Been Harmonized. So I want to just give a couple examples of this because these are grotesque, but they, this just scratches the surface. So missing since 2017, prominent Uyghur historian and publisher uh, Imanjan Sadin suddenly reappeared and praised the Chinese government in a video published by a state-run English-language newspaper uh, in early May. His comments in the video appeared to have been scripted in an attempt to discredit his teacher's public testimony about his arbitrary detention. So he is being made to discredit his own loved one, his own daughter's public testimony. And she's speaking out in behalf of, on behalf of him. But this is what is done. And, um, you know, they talk about this and we have been harmonized where like there is this use of the videotape confession that is pretty recent uh, in the 2000s and what it essentially is is it's just a way of the government displaying how much control they have over people and it shows the pageantry and the complete and utter despotic nature of the ccp to force these people to denounce their own loved ones it's literally 1984 stuff and like the right in america loves to say like the social media is 1984 and socialism is happening here. And you know, it's all 1984. Like, no, this is actual 1984 stuff. Um, and this kind of public denunciation, it, it, it is very painful. If you know a little bit of history about China, because the, the people of China, all ethnicities were subjected to these similar denunciations and public humiliations in struggle sessions during the Cultural Revolution. So I want to explain what the Cultural Revolution is for people. This is from Wikipedia, but it's a very accurate description based on the sources I've listed earlier that talk about this as well. You can't really talk about modern China without talking about the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. So I think uh, I think before we do that, something we should also say is that um, while, yes, we are talking about how terrible China is and you know, that it needs to be stopped. This is not two Americans banging the war drum saying that we should be going to war with China in order to, uh, in order to save the Uyghurs. Um, this is more of a, there should be more economic and diplomatic pressure in order to, uh, stop these atrocities from happening. More transparency so that this can be more easily documented and, pushed out towards the wider world. Um, yeah, we aren't war hawking for America right now. No, what we're, what we're, we're doing is right. Encouraging pressure to be put on the Chinese communist party. And we, we can do that as Americans because our dollar fuels their economy very heavily. Um, they're still largely an export based economy. So they rely on dollars from other wealthy nations to make cheap goods. Um, and 
as much as they want to try to get away from just being a manufacturing economy, they still very much are reliant on that. So we can actually vote with our dollars in this case and, you know, boycott Chinese products if that's what's necessary. Do whatever you can. Call your, you know, local congressman. Call your senator and tell them that this is something that you care about, that human rights for all individuals are important to you and that, you know, we we can't allow this crazy pageantry to continue. Um, Cultivating a, um, a cultural change within American society to rather than always going for our swords and saying, well, let's just go fight them. Um, not only that, but caring for other people outside of the American sphere in order to uh, create a better global society overall is very important. Yeah, we can't just say this isn't my problem because if you're buying products that are made in Xinjiang with with Xinjiang labor, then you you are indirectly endorsing this. And so be aware as much as you can of where the products you're coming from are. There's an app called Cultivate that I've seen um, another podcast uh, that talks about China a lot. Um, I've seen them talk about it. It's Cultivate. You can find out where products are from, like on Amazon and stuff. And so if you're trying to boycott or you're trying to make a difference with the purchases that you make, you can use that. Um, and, uh, but, but so we got a little bit on a tangent, but I think that was really important to mention. Um, I do want to explain the cultural revolution for people that don't know. So, uh, this is a reading here. Uh, the cultural revolution formerly known as the great proletarian cultural revolution was a socio-political movement in China from 1966 until Mao Zedong's death in 1976. Launched by Mao Zedong, chairman of the Chinese communist party and founder of the people's Republic of China. Uh, its stated goal was to preserve Chinese communism by purging remnants of capitalist and traditional elements from Chinese society and to reimpose Mao Zedong thought, known outside of China as Maoism, as the dominant ideology in the PRC. The revolution marked Mao's return to the central position of power in China after a period of less radical leadership to recover from the failures of the Great Leap Forward, which caused the Great Chinese Famine only five years prior. So this is... This is Mao using misdirection to get back into power after he starved his people. Um, You know, look into the Great Leap Forward. Look at what a fucking disaster it was. Uh, Look into the Cultural Revolution. We're talking about encouraging the youth and anyone to go out there to destroy traditional uh, Chinese architecture, to destroy any semblance of the China that once was, to erase your past completely and replace it only with Mao's version of communism. Um, denunciations of your family members, children turning in their parents for being counter-revolutionaries. And these struggle sessions were these public humiliations where you would go into a town square and just denounce people for not being communist enough or being a counter-revolutionary. And uh, that's kind of what is echoed to me in these video-based confessions. It's public humiliation. It's a struggle session that everyone can see. Um, and so that's what's really disgusting to me about it. Yeah, and right wing reactionaries would love to uh, to correlate the the cultural revolution in China to what is happening now. It's not. I wouldn't consider what's happening in America right now as a as a cultural revolution in any sense. No, but uh, right wingers do. They love that shit. Oh, this is just like, you know, the Great Leap Forward. We're destroying uh, our history. Well, the history that we're destroying 
quote unquote are uh, statues of confederates literal seditionists literal literal seditionists traitors to the u.s nation um and of course those statues weren't built during their time they were built during the civil rights movement as a like big middle finger to those who wished all people to be equal that's right so you know don't fall for that shit that's it's ridiculous it's it's complete trash it's fucking complete trash and so Thank you for bringing that up, because there is a parallel there, which is that, like, yeah, uh, this is just as bad as the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution devastated China, and there are still people, they're called the Lost Generation, there's still people today who lived through that time, that people that, you know, constantly cut in line, that are, that are you know, trying to fuck other people over. It's a survival instinct from the, the famine that occurred and the absolute anarchy that was the Cultural Revolution. It was a time of complete lawlessness. There was chaos and anarchy. The only way to survive that is to either be nihilistic or to be actively participating in the horrors that were going all around them. So um, really important to bring that up and not minimize the Cultural Revolution and its impact on modern China. Um, another example of like a forced confession would be, um, you know, this is in a very different way, but still the same principle, Peng Shui, what happened with Peng Shui. I don't know if people have followed that at all, but, you know, tennis star claimed sexual assault from a very high communist party official. Um, and then, you know, immediately deletes the post on, on Weibo and, uh, you know, immediately just disappears off the fucking face of the earth. And then, um, the WTA had to like, put an investigation into it and all these clearly scripted, you know, uh, videos got made and, uh, these like scripted little meet and greets where they're like, look, she's alive. Like we didn't fucking disappear her. Um, it's another example of just how strong the state is that they really think they can control the narrative. Um, and it's not just people living in China that actually, sparked a thing in my brain i used to follow k-pop a lot korean pop and a quite a few people in k-pop groups are from china and what we saw a few years ago was when everything in hong kong was happening the k-pop stars despite living in korea felt like they were forced to go against hong kong posting on Weibo, and everybody was like, what the fuck is going on? The grip is not just being on Chinese land. It's being in other places. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned that, because that connects directly to our next portion of the reading from amnesty.org. An increasing number of Uyghurs living overseas requested proof of life from authorities for their missing relatives in Xinjiang. Uyghurs living overseas were reportedly told by Chinese diplomatic offices uh, in their countries of residence, that they could only renew their Chinese passports if they returned to Xinjiang. Chinese embassies and agents harassed and intimidated members of the Uyghur and other di- diaspora minority communities across the globe. To silence and suppress the activities of Uyghurs living abroad, local authorities in Xinjiang reportedly targeted their relatives there. Numerous Uyghur uh, re- Uyghurs residing overseas were contacted by Chinese security agents via messaging apps and asked to provide information such as ID numbers, locations of residence, passports, photos, and ID information of their spouses. Others reportedly received repeated calls from security police asking them to gather information about and spy on others in overseas Uyghur communities. This is literally a globe-spanning effort. 
right? It's not just the Uyghurs in China. It's any Uyghurs anywhere are going to be targeted by this for being dissidents. And if they can't get to those people, they're going to go after their families. It's, 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 it's insane. Um, so I want to just go uh, a, a little bit further here. Um, the final parts of the reading. In June, 50 independent UN human rights experts strongly criticized China for the repression of religious and ethnic minorities in Xinjiang and Tibet, among others. In, uh, on 6 October, 39 UN member states issued a joint statement expressing grave concerns about the human rights situations in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and other regions, urging China to allow immediate, meaningful, and unfettered access to Xinjiang for um, other regions. Um, independent observers, including the UN High Commission for Human Rights and relevant UN special procedure mandate holders. Capitalizing on its rising political and economic influence and expanding role within the UN, China continued to seek ways to challenge established human rights mechanisms. In Inner Mongolia, there were, uh, there were region-wide protests over a new bilingual education policy that would gradually change the teaching medium for several classes from Mongolian to Mandarin Chinese throughout uh, the nine years of compulsory schooling. According to media reports, hundreds of people, including students, parents, teachers, pregnant women and children, were arrested for picking quarrels and provoking trouble solely because they participated in peaceful protest or shared information about protests on the Internet. Human rights lawyer Hu Baolong was reportedly formally arrested on charges of leaking state secrets overseas. So there's no tolerance for protesting against this inside of China. Um, and it's, it's, it's really scary. It's really scary stuff. Um, so, you know, heavy, heavy topic today. This is going on right now, and it is worth protesting about for sure. Um, you know, to, to people living in Taiwan or people living in Hong Kong or people, you know, living in, uh, inner Mongolia or people living in Tibet or people living in Xinjiang. Like I realize that those people are, are probably scared. Like Taiwan, look, as far as I'm concerned, totally different country, not, uh, Chinese Taipei. Um, but it doesn't stop people from being scared about jets flying into your uh, ADIS, right? Into your, your, your air defense zone. Um, it, it can be very scary to have to deal with this in a, in a really close way. Um, but, like, I think more and more people are starting to wake up to this. You know, I do see it covered more in the media. And I don't think that it's really just... Uh, you know, some kind of a ploy to go to war with China. Um, I, I really do hope that there, we're at, you know, a turning point. But I mean, it's both things can be true, right? The media would love nothing more than for us to, to be at war, especially with some th something or somebody as big as you know, the Chinese government, the Chinese country, right? Anything that stands against American supremacy. But that doesn't mean that the human rights, you know, travesties that are going on in the Chinese homeland aren't real. Both things can be true. And like we said before, this isn't us 
stepping in line with the mass media saying, yeah, we should we should definitely go to war to liberate the Uyghurs and, you know, save Taiwan, save Tibet. This is us simply saying that right now nothing is happening. And that should that should change. Not necessarily violence, but you know, there there's plenty of movement that can be done diplomatically and economically. Um, and unfor- unfortunately to the businesses that have been making billions off of you know, the way China runs things, they're, they're the ones who get hurt the most, which means that there probably won't be anything done. Yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric going around that people don't care, and I don't think that's true. People do care. A lot of us have empathy. Sometimes we just don't know what to do about Mm -hmm. outside oppression. Mm -hmm. But it's okay to care. It's okay to empathize. And it's it's hard. Yeah. It's it's hard to stay engaged with when you feel so powerless, but there are opportunities. You can go on to um freetibet.org or you can go on to amnesty.org. Um, you can, you know, donate to causes that try to fight for human rights in China. You can boycott um, Chinese products that are made with, you know, forced labor. You can, um, you know, you can talk to your congresspeople. You can, you know, you can do whatever you think is, uh, you know, what is what is possible from whatever position of power that you're in to, to try to fight this. And no voice is, is too small to, to make a, a difference. You, you just stay strong in your convictions, and you can have an impact, no matter how small it is. Um, so we're going to go to a break, and we're going to come back and do maybe one or two more segments. Okay, so um, kind of the last segment I wanted to do before we do our new segment um, is going to be just talking a little bit more about um, the you know, repression of Tibetans and uh, Uyghurs in um, China. And this is from uh, an American perspective. This is a a report on justice.gov. It's by the Congressional Research Service. Um, Propaganda. Yeah, propaganda. So we are both sidesing everything. We love to to both sides things. Um, So the first section I want to read is about Tibetans. So, following anti-government protests during the spring of 2008, authorities in the Tibetan Autonomous Region and other Tibetan areas in China imposed more intrusive controls on Tibetan religious life and culture. These include the curtailment of rights and freedoms to a greater degree than elsewhere in China, uh, arbitrary detention and imprisonment of Tibetans, and ideological re-education of Tibetan Buddhist monks and nuns. The PRC government insists that Chinese laws and not Tibetan Buddhist religious traditions govern the process by which lineages of Tibetan lamas are reincarnated and that the state has the right to choose the successor to the Tibetan spiritual leader, the 83-year-old 14th Dalai Lama who lives in exile in India. Okay, Chad, I feel like you had some feelings about that, so why don't you go ahead and tell me what you're feeling. Now, just the the Chinese government is 
the one who chooses who's reincarnated. You literally do not have the right to reincarnate without Chinese Communist Party approval. That's a real thing. There's documentaries on it. It wouldn't ever work that way. They think they get to choose. It sounds like you don't understand. So, so we're so we're pushing atheism here. Yes. But if you're gonna be Buddhist, yes. Chinese government is the one who chooses who gets to. You better file the right paperwork. <laughs> there, like that is like meme worthy, like galaxy brain stuff right there. But I, 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 I like I want to mention a little bit. Like that seems absurd, but it just goes to show the level of power that the CCP has and thinks it has over everyone's life. So this all started because the Dalai Lama. Basically, you know, he's getting older and he wanted to be able to appoint a successor. Um, and, you know, uh, so that the cause could continue. And uh, the Chinese Communist Party saw an opening here and they're like, oh, dude, we already found the guy who's going to be the next Dalai Lama. Like, it's 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 this dude over here. Like, we're going to we're just going to make sure that it's one of our guys. Um, it's legit. Like. Watching Avatar: The Last Airbender and going, no, no, yeah. that's not the Avatar. That's not the Avatar. We chose the Avatar. We choose the Avatar. It's and... this guy that can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it it's 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 pretty naked in its face. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. It's 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 insane. Um, and then uh, just a little bit more on kind of what Tibetans face from uh, freetibet.org. Tibetans face intense surveillance in their daily lives with security cameras, police checkpoints, and party officials monitoring their movements and activities. Peaceful protests are suppressed by severe violence. Protesters are imprisoned, tortured, and may even be shot. China has repeatedly violated UN conventions through extensive use of torture against Tibetan political prisoners. Prisons in Tibet are full of people detained for simply expressing their desire for freedom. They are arrested and convicted for peaceful acts such as waving the Tibetan flag, calling for the return of the Dalai Lama, and sending information about events in Tibet abroad. Many Tibetans are imprisoned on unclear or unspecified charges. Their families are not informed of their whereabouts. They are denied access to proper legal support and face trials that do not respect international standards of justice. Tibetans charged with separatism... Um, can face sentences up to and including the death penalty. Even children face abuses of their freedom and human rights. Um, and it so that's the type of violence. And then the cultural and religious suppression uh, aspect, the Tibetan flag and national anthem are banned. Tibetan Buddhism is seen as a threat to the occupying Chinese state and possessing uh, Dalai Lama images or teachings can result in imprisonment and torture. Chinese officials closely monitor and control religious activities at monasteries and nunneries. Since 2016, La Rungar, the biggest Buddhist institute in Tibet and indeed the world, has been the target of a major assault. Thousands of individuals have been evicted and thousands of homes demolished, and these removals continue today. Another large monastic town, Yarchengar, has also suffered the same fate. Writers, singers, artists, and teachers are jailed for celebrating Tibetan national identity and for any criticisms of China's rule. Chinese is the language of schooling and business, disadvantaging Tibetans and threatening their mother language. Tibetan school children are also being denied classes in their mother tongue and increasingly being taught in uh, Mandarin Chinese instead. So um, that is a mix of, you know, what the... Um, uh, Human Rights in China article says and what the um, 
freetibet.org says. And then I just want to read um, the little section from uh, the same uh, report from justice.gov on the Uyghurs. Um, so this, this, this report came out in 2020. Uh, in the past decade, PRC authorities have imposed severe restrictions on the religious and cultural activities of the Uyghurs, a Turkic ethnic group who practice a moderate form of Sunni Islam and live primarily in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Demonstrations by Uyghurs and ethnic unrest erupted in 2009, including Uyghur violence against Han Chinese and government reprisals. Uh, subsequent period, uh, periodic clashes between Uyghurs and Xinjiang security personnel spiked between 2013 and 2015. PRC leaders sought to stabilize the uh, Xinjiang Autonomous Region through more extensive security measures, including arrests, extensive electronic surveillance and monitoring of Internet use, and collecting biometric data of Uyghurs for identification purposes. Um, since 2017, the uh, Xinjiang Autonomous Region government has arbitrarily detained up to an estimated 1.5 million Uyghurs out of a population of about 10.5 million. Mm. That is over one-tenth of the population. Um, and a smaller number of ethnic Kazakhs in ideological re-education centers. Many of them had engaged in traditional religious and ethnic cultural practices that the government now perceives as manifesting strong religious views. Manifesting. That may, that's right. That may constitute or lead to separatism, extremism, or terrorism. Since 2019, thousands of Uyghurs, including many former detainees, reportedly have been employed in textile and other labor-intensive industries in Xinjiang and other provinces under circumstances that some observers argue indicate the use of forced labor. Experts say that the government's forceful attempts to transform the thought and customs of Uyghurs and assimilate them into Han culture will result in the destruction of Uyghur culture and identity. Um, so this is happening. It's happening. It's, it's not good. And, um, you know, I, there's, there's not much more to say about it is that, except that this is like naked cultural genocide and it's happening right now, and we know better. We know better because we've seen genocide take a, a bunch of different forms in a bunch of different countries, and it's always been wrong, and it's still wrong now. And criticizing it as an American, I don't think, makes me a hypocrite because I'm against genociding the Native Americans. I'm against genociding anybody. Um, so, you know, any final thoughts on that before we transition to our last segment? Anybody got anything? My only thought is, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, regardless of uh, whether or not some parts of this report could be stated as you know, state propaganda, it's obviously coming from a specifically you know congressional research service. Um, this has been corroborated by multiple outside sources to include you know human rights watchdogs which are not beholden to the US government right so you know there's no room there's no wiggle room here that you can say oh well you know that's just, that's just lies it's just not happening the Uyghurs aren't being genocided um and you know the other side of that is oh well the Uyghurs are being you know genocided slash um like reeducated because they're considered separatists and it's like even if we were to follow that line of thinking at what point do uh do separatists lose their um 
lose their like value to life yeah because of their ideas the u.s after the civil war didn't go through and genocide the entire south no and we pay for that until this day (laughs) (laughs) but um the point is the point is like regardless of what the perceived reason is this is still a group of people who can't defend themselves being led to the slaughter and there's no there's no way to look at this and say well it's okay right we 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 can't get caught up in the last refuge of the ccp propaganda machine which is well you do it too well they're doing it too that is everything the last we've, argument everything of someone we do, who is painted into a corner. Yeah, everything we do, we uh, we learn from the U.S. Right, exactly. Um, and it's like, that's a sick burn. I mean, got him, but <laughs> you're still murdering people for no reason. Yeah, and it's still not okay. One last article uh, before we end the segment is just going to be, this is a, a headline that I just want to read from a Washington Post article. China open to U.N. rights chief visiting... Xinjiang, as long as he doesn't do any investigating there, or sorry, as long as she doesn't do any investigating there, this is like, you can come and you can see that Xinjiang exists and then get the fuck out and you can't do it until after the we'll Olympics. Take you next to, uh, we'll take you next to the border, we'll show you the border and say, yes, this Xinjiang is does yep. exist, uh, and then we will turn you away. Yeah, exactly. We'll take you into a room, we'll turn off the lights, mm-hmm. we'll be like, you're in Xinjiang, do you see anything bad going on? Nope. All right, get the fuck out. Go home. Uh, all right, yeah, that's the end of the segment, and then we'll take a break, and we'll come back. All right, we're back. And uh, so for our uh, last segment today, uh, me and my boy Mike are going to talk a little bit about a bet that we got going on. So this bet is uh, not in good taste. Obviously, but uh, it's not. It's still, you know, fun, quirky. One might say. Mm. Um, our bet, and there's there's a, a decent chunk of change on the line for this one. Our bet is, I believe that we will not go to war with China in uh, in ten years. And what that means, we've we stipulated on this. We came to a, a compromise together. Not just not just like you know a police action or like uh congress says that we're going to war right this is any uh lives lost or any like fights between specifically chinese and american forces that means in uh the you know in the oceans that mm-hmm. means in, in air on the ground, air, land, and sea. Air, land, and sea. Yeah. Um. There will there will not be a, a conflict involving uh, Chinese and American forces. So I gunshot. Yeah, I do believe that shots will be fired at one point, and I think important to mention that I one of the most likely scenarios to me is a naval engagement over transiting through like the um, South China Sea. So coming too close to somewhere in the Spratly Islands or 
any of those little podunk reefs they built uh, out there to just, you know, be dicks and try to claim their are nine we saying, dash line. Are we saying that they have to shoot each other? Or are we saying that just one has to shoot one? I would say that an exchange of fire is good, but I would think that, like, you know, shooting at a, shooting at a ship is... All right, that's a stipulation to be made at another point because whether there needs to be an ex- I would say there would have to be return fire. I would say that both parties would have to engage with one another. It can't just be like shooting, you know, warning shots that accidentally accidentally hit somebody. I'm, I'm talking def- about like I'm definitely going to win this one. Talking about engagement here. Um, so I think that the South China Sea is a real likely scenario, especially with all the tensions ramping up, um, you know, with 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 Taiwan and stuff, and then. Even further than that, so that's like a most likely scenario. It's like infringing on territorial water claims, likely scenario. But then there's also the potential of like what happens if Taiwan gets attacked and Japan jumps in and then our mutual defense treaty kicks in and then all of a sudden we're going in with our boys. Yeah! And it's like, hey man, sorry for nuking you, but now we got your back 100%. Um, World War Three, but it wasn't Germany that started it this time. That's right. They're setting this one out, which you know is good. Um, they really took a took a turn. Their character arc. That's right. That's right. Completely, completely peaceful now. Respect it. Um, but yeah, so I think I think it's possible. I think you know India could also be a flashpoint there that potentially pulls us in. Um, I think that the, the scenarios are numerous, but most of them revolve around some kind of a competition over uh, shipping lanes. I think that's the main issue. And free transit, freedom of navigation in uh, exclusive economic zones or claimed exclusive economic zones or territorial waters, um, I think that that's the most likely scenario. I don't think that there's going to be a land war in China. <laughs> I like to hope that we learned our lesson. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. Uh, yeah, so that's my that's my my prediction. And it's not just it's not that I want this to happen. I don't want it to happen. It's bad. It's bad because our economies are so intertwined. It's bad because war is bad for the people that are involved know. in it. I think you want a thousand dollars. I well. The genius of this is as soon as the military conflict does happen, that's over. But uh, my boy Mike has to wait 10 years for this to pay off. I do. So uh, May May 30th, 2030. That is when... Stay tuned to the Soy Boy podcast until that 2030. Is when the bed is, that's when the bet ends. I have a feeling it's going to end a lot sooner than that. You, do you really not think that it's, it's like possible right now? Always bet on the U.S., getting into wars yeah but like i think that there is uh there or at least there should be a legitimate fear in the government that china would totally whoop us i agree and i think that that you have a lot of uh precedent on your side that it hasn't happened before now you know it, it hasn't happened for so long and they've been communist for so long that like if it hasn't happened by now and now that our economies are so integrated, what are the chances of it happening? We will continue to hoard the wealth that we get off of the backs of Chinese manufacturing, and nobody wants to wants to mess with that. 
even if we start moving our manufacturing to India, I don't think we enter a point where, like, China isn't still an integral part of our, uh, you know, assembly line. Okay. I, 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 I can definitely see those arguments. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm confident in the ability of the military-industrial complex to fan the flames of imperialist aggression and whatever the fuck other reasons we could have. Um, but I, I do think that most likely it's going to be like a mutual defense thing or it's going to be a infringing on territorial waters or claimed territorial waters scenario. Before 2030, I will run for president so yes. that... This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. <laughs> I will actively keep us out of this war uh, to win my thousand bucks. Uh, good on you, man. I, I salute you and I support you and I endorse you for president. Um, you heard it here first, folks. Michael, coming in, coming in clutch. That's right. 2028. That's going to be me. Mike, 2028. Hold, holding out the last four years. That's right. <laughs> I don't want to um, assume that I'll be a vice president can- uh, candidate um, because I really support uh, diversity. So I can't, in good conscience, uh, support myself being a running mate. But I will be uh, a PR guy and just bat away all the scandals left and right that stem from specifically this podcast. <laughs> well, you said on the Soy Boy podcast that... Uh... You wanted to genocide the white Southerners after the Civil War? <laughs> Which I will say... Correct. Yes, I did. Oh, my fucking God. And they'll be like, why did you say that? And I'll be like, well, instead uh, of doing that... Yeah, instead of doing that, we did the opposite and gave money to uh, white slave owners as uh, restitution for their loss of... Their loss of slaves as well as their, you know, loss of profits, which is quite gross. So if we had switched, you know, the money for bullets, mm. maybe maybe things would have turned out Jeez. different. Jesus Christ! <laughs> All right, Soy Boy Podcast, uh, episode four. We fully hope that you'll uh, tune in next time and we'll have a less geopolitically involved episode for you. We're going back to domestics, We're ladies and gentlemen. going back to domestics, to the market that we know. <laughs> We're going to talk about corn. Talking about corn, corn baby corn. All right. Have and a GMOs. good evening. <laughs>